Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Oline, Vicar Daniel Golden. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each week we get together to take a look at the readings for our upcoming Sunday service. Today we're going to be looking at the readings for the first Sunday after Christmas. This is a Sunday that oftentimes is uh, lightly attended in the church year. Uh, people have uh, just all gone to church on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and why would we bother going back to church on the Sunday after Christmas? Skip um, church Sunday. Say, well, yes, uh, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, that's why. Uh, but we have some uh, really, really significant readings here, and uh, readings that people just sadly often miss out on. The gospel reading is Luke 2. 33 to 40, and there's an option for a longer reading, 22 to 31, and uh, I'm not sure if we're going to have time to look at that longer reading or not, but quite frankly, our insert wouldn't allow all those words. That's kind of what determines sometimes here. Uh, Past, Pastor Moline's got this look on his face like, I got to say something, I got to say something. Well, we're, we're here at Good Shepherd, we're in discussion about editing our bulletin so we would have the space for those longer readings. Uh, the more word that we hear, the merrier, I think. If we believe God is attached to the word, creating and sustaining faith through that, uh, we ought to maybe listen to that. So, And uh, I don't feel bad about this particular reading, Pastor, because we do pick up these readings on one of the minor festivals that's coming up that is generally uh, right around Groundhog's Day, <laughs> uh, uh, right, right around the 1st or 2nd of February is when we celebrate the presentation of our Lord and the purification of Mary. We always do that on a uh, uh, Wednesday evening minor festival and uh, the readings are extremely extremely good and significant and so we get a little bit of a flavor for that. Is there a theological connection to Groundhog's Day? Uh, we'll have to ask Bill Murray on that That's one. <laughs> uh, Vicar, uh, enough of that nonsense. Luke 2, 33 to 40. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a, as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to, into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. All right. It, uh, we're, we're still in the uh, basking in the glow of our celebration on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and uh, now uh, we've, we've moved on. We've moved on. We have Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, Luke chapter 2, 
in the temple. Uh, Pastor, can you can you tell us a little bit about not only the the ceremony and the customs, but more specifically the ceremonial law and why they are doing what they are doing? Yeah, uh, in the uh, Old Testament, as part of the law, there's this idea that coming into contact with blood uh, makes a person unclean, and then especially uh, human blood and uh, the life being in the blood, of course. And then it's brought out even further into particular things where there is blood that's shed. For example, in giving birth, there's quite a bit of blood that is shed and uh, um, spilled. And as a part of this, it makes the person unclean, uh, ritually speaking, in the Jewish mind. And so as a part of the post-birth uh, practice, there's a period of time where uh, the the woman who gives birth is unclean and therefore stays at home with the baby. And then there's also this idea in the Old Testament about uh, when uh, the time of uncleanness is over, that firstborn children are to be dedicated to the Lord, uh, brought to the temple. And this isn't dedication like in some uh, Reformed churches, rather. This is, again, a prophecy fulfilled by Jesus Christ that he is the firstborn son of God. And so all these things brought together at the end of the uncleanness, um, Joseph and Mary bring Jesus uh, to the temple to offer a sacrifice, to dedicate him to the Lord and uh, as purification for Mary's uncleanness uh, from the post-childbirth time. And normally the sacrifice that should be brought is a a goat or a lamb. Uh, And then there's the provision that if someone is poor, they can bring two turtle doves in place of that lamb. And that's what Mary and Joseph do. And so they're here at the temple to dedicate Jesus and to receive this cleansing from the birthing process. And that's when uh, they're there that they meet these two people mentioned in our gospel lesson. Okay. And uh, well said. And uh, you covered almost everything that I wanted you to. There's one thing that you you didn't, and that is the verse before the extended uh, verses here that we're not going to read, Luke 2.21, Luke 2.21, and uh, if you if you don't have that handy, there's one other thing that Which, they did, Yeah, Luke 2.21 says, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Uh, how does that, the, the naming of the child and the circumcision of the boy baby, how does that fit into this uh, context of Luke chapter 2? Right, and this is uh, traditionally then celebrated on uh, New Year's Day, uh, eight days after Christmas, uh, the, the circumcision and naming of Jesus. The name of Jesus is important, uh, as are all the names in the Bible, because the names of the people in the Bible tell us what that person does or how God is going to use them. And so, you know, for example, we have Abraham, which means uh, the father of many nations, and that's exactly who Abraham is. Uh, or we have um, Adam, who's made from the dust of the ground, and guess what the name Adam means? Um, My pastor always made fun of me when I was a kid this way, called me Dirt Boy, uh, because that's what the name Adam means, is dirt. Um, And then um, we have Jesus being named Jesus, which uh, is kind of a, the Greek version of Yahshua. Uh, the, the word Yah is shorthand for Yahweh, which is the name God gives to Moses uh, from the burning bush. Uh, and then Shua is the verb that means to save or saves. And so the name of Jesus is 
the Lord saves. And it's no coincidence then that the first uh, time Jesus is given this name is on the eighth day as he is circumcised and sheds his very first blood as well uh, in the circumcision rite. In fact, A, uh, a doctor um, that's a member of our congregation was telling me that um, you have to have some sort of blood shed uh, in the Jewish circumcision right for the circumcision to count. Um, and uh, uh, that's really key then with the understanding of the circumcision of Jesus. This is the very first blood shed so that the Lord can save his people from their sins. And uh, that's kind of a neat thing that happens then on January 1st. Okay, and all of these things are prescribed in the ceremonial law. All of these things are followed by Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Uh, Jesus is fulfilling the law. He is shedding already uh, on the eighth day the first drops of his blood for the forgiveness, life, and salvation of the world. And now we have this kind of strange, bizarre encounter. The first is with Simeon. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Um, Simeon is not saying, Oh, what a beautiful baby you have here. Uh, Simeon is uh, preaching some pretty hard words Pastor, what's happening here? Yeah, um, I think you know the the additional part that we don't have covered in here gives a little more information about Simeon. Simeon is a man who's been living here in the temple, um, and uh, he'd been promised that before he died, he would see the promised Messiah. Uh, there's even a church tradition, not a church tradition, but uh, a tradition from the old days that uh, Simeon had lived to be a very, very ancient man, at least by today's standards, longer than anybody else does, waiting to see this promised Messiah. Um, and um, Lord, now you let your servant go in peace. Your right. word has been fulfilled. We sing his words sing his every words Sunday in church. Every Sunday. And I think it's, again, his name, Simeon, means obedient um, and listening obedient. It kind of has the idea as well. And so that's even fulfilled in him. He is listening to God's word this whole time. So the words that he then says, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, is exactly the truth because Christ changes everything for the people of Israel. No longer is their whole life caught up in the temple and being obedient to God's law, and that is the way they earn salvation. Rather, now salvation is seen as the free gift given by the ultimate sacrifice and fulfillment of the temple in Jesus Christ. And um, you could say, sparking from this whole division that begins here in Jerusalem at the death and resurrection of Christ, uh, recorded for us in the book of Acts, uh, leads to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It leads to conflict between Jews and Christians for many, many years in the uh, ahead, and uh, it kind of changes the course of the Jewish nation for all time as a result of what Christ does. The uh, the words that he says, and I, I know a week or two ago you made uh, reference to this as well, a sword will pierce through your own soul too. Who is Simeon talking to and what is he talking about? Yeah, the sword piercing uh, your own soul does several things. First off, it tells us about the death of Jesus, um, that 
as he dies on the cross, the soldiers, to make sure that he's dead, stab him with a spear. Um, the Roman spears, uh, javelins that are used for this sort of thing, are kind of a unique format. They're a, a long wooden pole, and then instead of just a little spike on the end, it has actually a long spike that's about 18 inches long, designed to pierce things and then bend so that they can't throw it back. And this is the thing that pierces Jesus' heart and lungs, and water and blood pour forth from that. Uh, as he hangs on the cross to prove that he's dead. And so Simeon sees that ahead in the future, and he says to Mary, not only uh, will Jesus die, essentially, but you also will feel that pain. And she does, because Jesus is her son who dies on the cross, and she witnesses it firsthand. And any mother can tell you uh, that is not an easy thing to witness. There, There is no uh, sugarcoating the reason why Jesus has come into the world. In the words of Simeon, we see that Jesus, God in the flesh, has come to pay the ransom for the life of the world. As a sword pierces his heart, so a sword will pierce the soul of Mary. These are words that will divide people. They will expose people's thoughts. Uh, are you with him or are you against him? Do you believe in Christ as your Savior and Lord or do you reject him and his words? These are really, really important questions and we'll continue to explore them as we come back. This is Proclaiming the One. We need to take a short break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We're looking at the readings for the first Sunday after Christmas. What we had on our uh, bumper music coming in is a, a hymn that uh, really has been um, kind of abused over the years. Uh, Pastor, in our LSB hymnal, we at least have the original title and the original words back, Low. Uh, how air rose, uh, help lo, me out here. Lo, how a rose air bloometh, or is blooming, uh, and uh, it is actually a great hymn. Uh, it is a German hymn that dates uh, back to before the time of the Reformation. Es ist ein Rose in Sprungen uh, is the uh, German version of it. It was used at the time of Martin Luther um, in more of a chant sort of format, and uh, after the time of Martin Luther, the great Lutheran musician that probably nobody knows about, uh, named Michael Praetorius, wrote the tune for it uh, that we are familiar with. And I think the reason that it's more familiar today is because Mannheim Steamroller uh, took that uh, version written by Michael Praetorius and did it on one of their Christmas CDs. But the whole idea is, is that um, Mary is... Um, 
a rose bush, and she bears a blossom that is tremendously beautiful and wonderful. And that blossom then is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's the one who's born to set us free from sin. And so, in a way, it's kind of a, a focus on Mary and Jesus and uh, the birth of Christ all wrapped into this beautiful poetic format and comparing her to that rose bush. So. And I think mo- many of our hearers are probably more familiar with the uh, with the hymn "Behold a Branch is Growing," which is uh, you know set to this tune and is more based on the prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And so it's pretty easy to get those two mixed up, get those two kind of. Um, uh, co-mingled together and uh, it's also kind of a difficult tune and so a lot of people don't sing it very often it, it is um, and that's I think that maybe the benefit for Mannheim Steamroller having done it on their CDs that now the uh, tune is a little familiar uh, the second verse does focus on that Isaiah passage that we're talking about and so uh, it doesn't get lost there and so it is a great hymn. It's one that we probably should sing more often and learn uh, and memorize uh, because it does teach the faith very clearly. Okay, uh, back to our text, Luke two thirty-three to 40. I want to pick up, we talked in our first segment mostly about uh, Simeon, Simeon's prophecy, who he is, getting us up to this. And I want to begin now in verse 36. Vicar, do you want to read 36 to the end of our text and get those words fresh in our brain? And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Okay, Pastor, this prophetess Anna, uh, what do we know about her? Uh, Set set the stage for her uh, very, very uh, famous confrontation with Jesus. Yeah, so uh, in the the Temple Mount, there's uh, acres and acres of a big platform that is open space where people can go around and interact with one another. And around the entire Temple Mount, there's a colonnade as well, uh, which is a, a roofed area held up by columns where you could meet out of the sun and out of the rain, uh, and perhaps even uh, in a place in the shade where it's a little cooler. Um, and so Anna lives here in the Temple Mount. Uh, she lives there because she is a widow. Uh, her husband died uh, not very far into their marriage and she has no family to take care of her and so she lives here in the temple uh, worshiping God and uh, trusting in his word and promises and gifts Uh, and so uh, her name then also it means um, beautiful or uh, grace or uh, received uh, this grace Uh, and so this is her name and then her father's name I think is important as well Fanuel is a, a way of saying before the face of God and so it's obvious then that they have this faithful family, uh, faithful um, 
tradition within their family of being in church, and this is exactly where she is. And when she sees our Lord, that's when she really gets her opportunity to be that great prophetess, to proclaim God's word, and to speak who this baby is that is being brought into the Temple Mount, the same way that Simeon did before. Uh, And I think that's key about her. So they're in the Temple Mount area, in these outer courts, in this big area, wandering around, and Anna comes up to them, this 84-year-old woman praising God because of who she sees in Jesus. She praises God um, about the circumstances of what she is doing now. I suppose we would talk about maybe her vocation. It says here that uh, she lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. So she was married for seven years, and then her husband died. Then as a widow until she was 84. And I think that there are a couple of um, manuscripts that say 84 years and not until she was 84. So we just know she's at least 84 years old here, maybe maybe even older. And consider how long of a widowhood that is, really. Um, In the ancient world... Uh, a woman would be married when uh, she's able then to start conceiving children at a, at you know a young age then seems young to us but 14 15 16 years old uh, is probably the marrying age for most women at that time so consider if she's 84 or older and she was married when she was 14 how long she's been a widow I've been a widow a long time my mom passed away last year and she was a widow for 52 years uh and so i know firsthand uh from my own family situation what uh, what that is like and so uh talking about a long time talking about a long time being alone and what what is anna doing uh in her vocation uh it just it just seems kind of odd that uh it appears she pretty much lives at church yeah that's what she does she worships, she fasts, and she prays night and day. And I think this is an important thing for us to learn as well for uh, our own congregations and their health. Um, Lots of times um, people get this idea that, well, I got my kids through confirmation, so I don't need to help you, or uh, I'm at a different point in my life. And yet we see here in Anna how important this woman who is a widow is for the life of the congregation or of the church at large. Uh, she continues to pray for uh, the people around her that she knows. She fasts, she worships, she's a part of the uh, cultic experience at the Temple Mount, if you will. And I think that our own widows and uh, older members and uh people in the church can take that to heart as well. Help the people around you. If you see the mom uh, who's struggling with four kids by herself sitting down the pew, uh, go help her out. Be a Christian to her and care for her in the same way that Anna does for those in the temple area. I think it's also significant, well said, Pastor. I think it's also significant that uh, you know we don't have any words of Anna recorded, but we are told that she gave thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Uh, Was Anna a pastor? 
No. Um, in the scripture, all the pastors, uh, at least in the New Testament, are ordained, and she never is. Uh, and she's not eligible to be as well as a woman. Not that uh, women are incapable of speaking God's word or of uh, even uh, less value. In fact, I think the reason that uh, women are not in the pastoral ministry is because they're actually probably more valuable. We don't want them to do that miserable job of pastoring. Um, and pastor's laughing here because they think he knows that's true. Um, so Been there, done that, bought a t-shirt. Right. Uh, she's not a pastor, but that doesn't stop her from using the word the way God desires it to be used. And I think that uh, all of us can take an example from Anna in that regard as well. Um, don't be afraid to spread the word about Jesus and to talk about him and uh, to invite them then into the congregation to receive the gifts that are offered there. Um, we see this with other people, the apostles in the beginning of John's gospel, come and see. Uh, can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see. Uh, that's really what evangelism is, and it's not just the pastor's job. Every member of the congregation can invite others to come into the congregation and hear God's word together. And I think uh, I think that uh, word here where uh, she is uh, uh, speaking of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel backs up everything you just said, Pastor. The uh, vocation of Christian means that we open our mouth and we invite, we share the good news of Jesus. We don't have to be a pastor to do that. In fact, sometimes being a pastor almost hinders us yeah. from doing that in certain situations. But uh, people have those opportunities with their family, their friends, their neighbors, their co-workers to invite people to come and hear the good news of Jesus. In Acts chapter 8, that's very clear as well, where... Uh, the persecution after the death of Stephen drives the Christians out of Jerusalem, and they take the word of God with them. And after the word starts to spread, they say, hey, now that people are believing, we probably ought to get a pastor here. And they send Philip to then fill that role. Awesome. Uh, the last few verses here, 39 and following. Uh, when Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Pastor, why did they go back to Nazareth? Well, um, they go back to Nazareth because that's really essentially Mary's hometown, and uh, it's also where Joseph had been living and working, and so uh, that's where they go. They had been previously, uh, before this time, in Bethlehem for the census, and uh, they might have been there for quite a time, actually, before Jesus was even born. And uh, now that Christ is born and able to travel the few more miles up to home, that's exactly what they do. They're not going to spend all this time living with relatives in Bethlehem like they had been for the, the time before this. Anybody with a new baby knows that's never particularly fun to do. <laughs> I, I know we don't have a lot of time left in this segment, Pastor, but a question that I want to ask. In Matthew, we are told about Mary and Joseph and the baby uh, having to escape to Egypt to avoid the uh, murder of the innocents in Bethlehem. Time-wise and such, how does that fit into what we're reading here in Luke? I think it all can fit together, and... Um I'd have to, to do the work to get together a specific timeline. We know that Herod the Great died in 4 BC, uh, and so that kind of gives us a timeline of when these things are happening. And we also know that at the end of his life, Herod is 
essentially crazy, um, that he is suspicious of everyone, that everybody's trying to steal his kingdom and things away. And so it's not that these things are contradicting each other. They are not. But we aren't getting the full story from each one of the Gospels, and so it's important for us to take the whole picture um, as a whole. This isn't surprising. If you have all your witnesses telling you exactly the same thing in exactly the same way in a court case, uh, you think there's been witness tampering. And the fact that we get different bits and pieces from each of the gospel writers tells us this is probably an accurate and complete uh, account of what's going on. Yeah, Luke doesn't tell us this doesn't happen. He just does not include that doesn't detail mention it where Matthew does. We need to take a short break. This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the first Sunday after Christmas. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us for worship every Sunday at 8 and 1030 with Sunday school for all ages in between. We worship every Wednesday evening at 630, except for this week. I'm sorry about that, folks. We're going to come together on Tuesday evening this week, New Year's Eve, special New Year's Eve service at 6 o'clock, and there will be no Wednesday service this week. It is extremely rare for us to happen, but since we have the tradition of having a New Year's Eve service, we, uh, we want you to come and join us, and then also uh, no Wednesday service on New Year's Day and uh, everything else will be exactly the same. All of our services are broadcast live on KNNALP 95.7 in and around Lincoln. You can listen on the web or your handheld device, thecross957.org. Check out our archives. We'd love to hear your feedback. On this first Sunday after Christmas, the Old Testament reading is a long one, but a great one. 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 16. Vicar? Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, 
Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity... I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Wow. Second Samuel 7. Uh, and, Vicar, if you ever get the chance, I believe Luther has an entire volume, an entire volume on this chapter of Scripture, Second Samuel 7, the, often referred to as the dynastic oracle, the dynastic oracle. Uh, I will make you a house forever. And uh, he's not talking about turning David into brick and stone and mortar. He's got something much, much bigger going on here. So the king here, we can dispense with that. The king is David, right? And we have Nathan and David having this conversation. Uh, Nathan and David had other conversations, too, recorded in Scripture, Pastor. Is that right? That's correct. Um, When David uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba, Nathan's the one who... Uh, gives him the what for and tells him what God's word says about uh, sleeping with someone who is not your spouse and uh, that it's wrong and that we ought not do it. I've often thought that this uh, this chapter should be uh, required reading for any pastor who uh, wants to have a building project in the congregation for any building committee before they start uh, hiring architects and putting out plans. David wants a building project. He has desired it for a long time. He goes to Nathan, and Nathan says, yeah, sounds like a good idea. And then the Lord speaks to Nathan and says, "Um, no, this is not going to happen. Pastor, what's going on here in this uh, build me a house, don't build me a house uh, dialogue? Well, um, God works the way God wants to with things, and God uh, has raised up David to be kind of a military leader for the people of Israel to establish uh, an earthly kingdom for them. And as a result, uh, there are many people that have died at the hands of David or his, David's army, and probably at this point still will to some extent. And so um, 
God, because of that, doesn't want David to be the one to build the house, but rather he says, your son will do it, who will have peace and won't actually be this military leader, but will just be a king. And we know that that king immediately is Solomon, the wise. Uh, and so that's the first part then, uh, your son, Solomon, will be the one to build the temple. David gets everything ready. He gathers a lot of the wood and things like that. Solomon does more of that work at the beginning of his reign, but it's actually Solomon who builds the temple uh, at the north side of Jerusalem on top of Mount Moriah. And uh, so that's the first thing. And then there's also this extension uh, where God ultimately isn't really talking about a temple itself, but rather is talking about uh, Jesus being the temple of God, where God dwells in human flesh. We even had at the end there, and I know we'll get there, the mention of the stripes and the rod that beat him uh, before he dies. And so we have as we do with all this prophecy, we have the immediate context, and then we have the greater context that points us to Jesus Christ in the future. It's uh, it's almost confusing when you're reading, uh, especially the last verses here of our text, Second Samuel 7, 1 to 16. It's really kind of hard to tell whether God is talking about Solomon, son of David, or Jesus, son of David. Is that intentional? Yes, it's very intentional, and that's where we see the words as true for both of those people together. To the best of my knowledge, I can't think of a place in Scripture where uh, God disciplined Solomon with the rod of men or the stripes of the sons of men, and uh, yet if we read it directly, it seems like that's what he's saying. And so that tells us that this wor- these words are true for both Solomon and for Jesus. And I think then Solomon really is a type or a pre prefiguring of who Jesus is going to be. Jesus is wisdom incarnate. Solomon is the wise king. Jesus brings peace. Solomon reigns in peace. Um, Jesus uh, is the temple. Solomon builds the temple. And so you see how Jesus kind of fulfills all these different parts of who um, Jesus fulfills all the different parts of who Solomon is. Now, David is not allowed to build the temple or, uh, yeah, to build the temple, but God gives him many, many blessings through Nathan in this text. What are some of those blessings that that God gives to Nathan? And I'm thinking specifically um, uh, about verse, excuse me here, about verse 9 and following. Yeah, uh, well, God promises through Nathan to David that uh, he will be planted as a special place, that he will be uh, a house that is established, that uh, a violent man shall afflict them no more, uh, and uh, he goes on and on, the rest from their enemies, etc., etc. And so again, we see this as immediately true for David and then also for his dynasty. But we also know David's dynasty falls apart uh, about seven or eight generations later, uh, and that there's actually problems and conflict, and the Babylonians come, and there's uh, they really become subject to Babylon, and then they rebel against Babylon, and they're actually led away uh, to exile in Babylon, and that's about 400 years after David lives. So, This promise is made, but it doesn't actually find its fulfillment in David and his offspring. It finds its fulfillment then in Jesus, uh, who is the king that lasts forever, whose kingdom still exists now and reigns and will forever and ever world without end, uh, as Handel um, sang for us very famously. Um, And so 
its fulfillment of these words, again, is found in Jesus. The, uh, uh, you, you talked about here how the, the dynasty of David falls apart. Yeah. And yet we have several times in this text, in verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. Now, we want to say this is Solomon, and then it says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Oops, that's Jesus. And then the last verse, verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. How is God's word here clearly stated that the throne of David will be established forever? How is that fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus? Well, um, to get down to the brass tacks here, right? Jesus, uh, before he is crucified, is dressed in a purple robe and crowned with a throne or thorns, uh, and mocked as fake king. He's even given a rod to hold in his hand to show his power and authority. And then they take that rod and they use it to beat him in the face and uh, uh, even to push the thorns into his head. He is then throned on a throne, the throne of a cross, uh, where he is hung naked, hanging and bleeding and dying. And all of this then is establishing the throne of God's kingdom, where now Jesus ascends into heaven and lives and reigns with all power and glory and honor and might and wisdom and thanksgiving uh, as God's king for us, world without end. And, and so it's that king, Jesus, the descendant of David, um, is the king who lives and reigns forever, and uh, he will die no more. Uh, he No longer will anything of the trials and tribulations of an earthly king affect Christ. He has conquered, and the world is but a footstool to his feet. I can't help but think of uh, Handel's Messiah when they are extolling the resurrection of our Lord, and uh, he will reign forever and ever and ever. And uh, that just Hallelujah. Sends- Hallelujah, that just sends goosebumps up your spine when you think about that. And this is the king that we are talking about here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Oh, Pastor, I think we need to do about a 10-part sermon series on this text, don't you think? Uh, that would be good. We that would do it be for, awesome. Um, Advent or Lent or something. That would be awesome. All right, we need to take a short break. This is Proclaiming the One for the first Sunday after Christmas. We'll be right back. Don't change that dial. FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden. Uh, 
We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each week we come together and look at the upcoming readings for our Sunday worship service. In segments one and two, we looked at the gospel reading, Luke 2, 33 to 40, the gospel reading for the first Sunday after Christmas. In our third segment, we looked into one of the great Old Testament sections, 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 16, oftentimes referred to as the dynastic oracle. And in our last segment, we want to take a look at our epistle reading, one of my favorite epistles in the entire scripture. Galatians 4, 1 to 7. Vicar? I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That verse, verse 7 of Galatians chapter 4, is an amazing verse. So you, dear Christian, are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. H-E-I-R. Let's start at the beginning, Pastor. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is teaching the difference between somebody who is in the family and not in the family. Somebody who is an heir and somebody who is a slave. What is, uh, what is the teaching that's going on here at the beginning of this text? Yeah, he says, um, as long as he is a child, he's no different than a slave, though he's the owner of everything. And, and before the master dies... Uh, that's it's, it's at death that inheritance really kicks in, right? I Correct. don't get to inherit things from my family uh, while they're still alive unless they choose to give them to me. And, and so in that regard, until the master dies, you are there's really no difference between slave and heir except for the fact that you are the child. Uh, and so when dad says to the slave, uh, go and mow the grass, he says uh, to the son, go and mow the grass. In both cases, the people who are commanded must obey or face consequences and punishment. Um, once the master dies, everything changes. All of a sudden, the son inherits everything uh, and becomes the, the one who now owns the slaves and maybe even uh, has the wealth and the riches and the home and the possessions of the one who's passed away. And that, I think, is the key thing for us to understand in this. As heirs, right now it looks like we're all the same across the board, but when Christ dies, and uh, then we inherit everything that belonged to him, forgiveness, life, salvation, everything that belonged to God is now ours in the death of Jesus Christ. And therefore, 
before we get to inherit all that great things. We get promise of heaven and peace and comfort and joy that is to come. And and so that's kind of the picture that Paul is painting here. And uh, he that child is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father, when the child comes of age or at the death of the father. Um, Paul is setting the stage here. And he is teaching us, you know, in the same way. We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. How are we enslaved to the elementary principles of the world? And who then would be our guardian and manager at that time? Well, when we're born and conceived, we are born and conceived sinful. We are under the authority of sin, death, and the devil. Uh, We cannot hope to do any good, but only do evil. The inclinations of our heart are evil from the moment of our conception. And uh, and so that's just the reality of uh, our existence in this sinful world. Um, we're underneath managers and guardians, and uh, I guess you could say in this particular case, that's Paul teaching and preaching about the office of the holy ministry uh, and the word uh, and other Uh, things like that. So God gives us the word that says, you shall not murder. uh, And so we try not to murder. He gives us pastors that explain what that means in the details, right? So murdering uh, is not just physically taking someone's life, but it's hurting and harming someone in their body uh, and failing to help and support them in every physical need. And so those are our guardians and managers teaching us what's right and wrong and helping us to make it through this, uh, this life and this world. Paul is setting the stage here because in verse 4, he has an amazing but. This is the way things work. But something happened, and everything changed. Something happened, and this old order is flipped on end. But, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. We have so much here in such a few words. First of all, when the fullness of time had come. What are we talking about, Pastor? Well, uh, in the immediate context, we're talking about when the time was right for the difference between heirs and slaves to be made known, uh, which would be the death, like we talked about. And then in the broader sense, we're talking about then the coming of Jesus Christ, who comes for that very specific reason, uh, to bleed and die on the cross and rise again. And so uh, we have that fulfillment of what's being said before and finding that fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It's not an accident. It's not an accident of time. At the exact time God appointed, wanted it to happen, it happened. The time was ripe. The time was, if I remember my Greek right, the time was pregnant uh, here. Uh, it's time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. What is the significance of the fact, Pastor, that God's son is born of a woman, born under the law? Well, because, uh, and this is all in your catechism, right, so you can go and study this if you look in the questions and answers from the synodical part of it. Um, What it means is that Jesus was true man and thereby able to fulfill the law in our place and to be subject to the law in our place uh, and, and take our place under the law and do what is right 
as we are unable to do for us. I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from all eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. That's the section you're talking about in the Catechism. This is Luther's meaning, the first sentence Mm -hmm. in Luther's meaning to the second article of the Apostles' Creed. Jesus is true God and true man. And in the explanation, uh, the questions at the back, it gives a good reason, uh, an explanation for why he had to be man and why he had to be God. And I think just last week we talked about this a little bit in our um, uh, Sunday morning uh, summary of Christian doctrine class as well. And uh, the most recent questioning for our junior confirmads, why did our Savior have to be true man so that he could suffer and die. Why did he have to be true Savior? So that he could rise from the dead and pay for the sins of the world. It's really pretty simple. It wasn't easy, but it is really pretty simple. Okay, now uh, in our text here, to redeem those who are under the law. We've talked about this before. What does that word redeem mean? Vicar? Purchase. That is a financial judicial term to redeem, like in the old days where they had green stamps when you got groceries and you would take the stamps in and redeem them for this appliance or the spatula or what have you. This is the same swap, this great holy exchange of uh, forgiveness for uh, instead of penalty of sin. And Jesus redeems us, not with green stamps, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and his innocent suffering and death. That's what this is all talking about. And this is the death that Paul is alluding to here that changes everything between the child who now becomes an heir because the death has happened. Is that right, Pastor? That's exactly right. Okay. And in this way, so that, verse 5, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is how we get into the family? It is. Uh, God adopts us in the waters of holy baptism. He puts his name upon us in that uh, right, both upon our forehead and upon our heart. Uh, He baptizes us with his name in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so in the same way that if you adopt someone, uh, you give them your name uh, as your child, the same thing God does for us in holy baptism. And the natural child, the adopted child, they call daddy, daddy. And uh, God gives us these words. We are now in the family. We have a relationship, and we can call God Abba Father. Last verse. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Pastor, I'm just going to ask you a very simple question. So what? Well, uh, if you're the son, then you get all the stuff that the father has uh, when he dies. And so you get... Like we said before, all the blessings and care uh, that a father gives to a child, you get all the things that belong to him. Uh, We have also then, I think, again, to drive you back to your catechism, if you look at the Lord's Prayer and its explanation in the small catechism, Our Father, who art in heaven, what does this mean? With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true father and that we are his true children, so that with all boldness and confidence we may ask him things as dear children ask their dear father. And so we keep those words in mind. And I think Luther always, uh, he did a tremendous job in creating the catechism to correctly expound what Scripture teaches. Uh, It's really, truly a blessing for us to learn that. You are a child of God, dear Christian, not because of anything you have done or said, but by the mercy of God, who has adopted you into his family. 
Everything is yours, forgiveness, life, and salvation, won by the bloody death and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of this was no accident. God planned it perfectly for you and for your salvation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and your dad always has your back, right? Yeah. He's always there for you. He takes care of you. He uh, provides the things that you need, and that's now what God does for you as well. Amen. Vicar, you want to bring things to a close on this first Sunday after Christmas with the collect of the day. Let us pray. Oh God, our maker and redeemer, you wonderfully created us, and in the incarnation of your Son, yet more wondrously restored our human nature. Grant that we may ever be alive in him who made himself to be like us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. This Sunday when you get up, read your paper, drink your coffee, check the thermostat and the thermometer, pray for your pastor, but most importantly, go to church. This is Proclaiming the One. We'll see you again next week. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. God's richest blessings in Christ.